0: It's a long time, I think, that I've seen such an egregious example of media lying. There's no other word for it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Steve Hilton Show, the big story of the week. It's Biden. It's his age. It's the her report. It is just inescapable. Uh, The Democrats desperately trying to escape it, trying to deal with this nightmare that they find themselves in which is that they're they're saddled with this candidate that they all know is a disaster, that, what is it, 86% was a poll this week of people in the country, 86%, a majority of Democrats included in that number, think that um, he doesn't have the capacity, he's too old, doesn't have the capacity to be president, to serve a a full term. I mean, it's just so obvious. Um, And they're trying to deny, I mean, there's so much to say about this. Um, But let's just start with potentially the most hilarious quote of all, in all the uh, attempts by Democrats to spin their way out of this nightmare. Um, Nancy Pelosi, listen to this.
1: He's always on the ball. He knows these issues. He knows the legislation. He helped write some of it. He campaigned on it. He remembers it. Age is an objective fact. As I say, it's all relative. He's younger than I am. So what do I have to say about his age?
0: Oh, perfect. Brilliant. Right? (laughs) He's younger than she is. So that's the answer. Everyone knows. I mean, even as she says it, you know, the, the. the, the point is that it's not just about the age. And, and she's the example of it. In fact, you know, when we talk about this all the time, we say, look, it's not about his age. It's about his capacity. You've got plenty of people older than Biden who, who seem perfectly fine. And, and you may disagree with them, but there's no problem with their capacity to do difficult jobs. She's the being Nancy Pelosi being the prime example who ran the House of uh, representatives I and mean, when she was speaker in a brilliant manner. Everyone agrees with that. Again, regardless of the politics, she's obviously incredibly good at her job and, and was right up to the minute that she stepped down as speaker. And so it's not, it isn't to do with age. Another example, Bernie Sanders. You watch Bernie Sanders these days. I think he's older than Biden or the same. I don't know roughly. But, I mean, he's just completely firing on all cylinders, clearly as as energetic and and as capable as he was when he first came on the national scene, you know, back in... 2015, 2016. So it really isn't to do with age. It really is to do with capacity. And if you watch Biden and you watch him, you know, even... Even in all of, the, even, even in the coverage of this, you know, they're playing clips of Biden, for example, from the 2020 campaign, so from 2019 and 2020, when he's being asked about his age then. And just watch him. He looks like a different person, even three years ago. So the decline is just precipitous and accelerating. And that was what was so devastating about the events of last week, because even before you had the Her Report, you had this, um, you know, escalation in the, in the pace, acceleration in the pace of the things that we used to call gaffes, but they're not gaffes at all. They're indications of an inability to do the job. And you can use whatever term you use and people talk about senility and senility, remember, it's not a medical condition. It's not a medical diagnosis people are making from afar. It's just a fact of, you know, if you look it up, it's just old age affecting your, impairing your performance. That's what it is. And, and it's just obvious. So just in the space of a few days, you had Biden, you know, m- muddling up different, Um, you know, dead politicians and thinking there he'd been speaking to them and so on. And then you have the her report and which which, you know, the sort of fatal phrase, you know, an elderly man with a poor memory. That's a bit of an understatement when you watch Biden. It's not just the memory. It's just the fact that he clearly doesn't have what it takes. I mean, you can you just watch him and you see that the blank stares and so on. I mean, it's just painful to watch. Of course, he was infuriated by it. Um, Unbelievably, they allowed him to go out and try and rebut this report and of course he makes it worse and then you know does another one of these you know mistakes when he's, he's muddling up mexico and egypt and you know it's just it, look, we all know the facts but here's the thing that i just think it's really important to say about all of this which is that the way that they're circling the wagons and trying to prop up biden is is actually of course it's laughable in a way so ridiculous uh, I mean, just if you watched the Sunday shows and you saw these people fanning out and saying, oh no, he's really, in private, he's really, really sharp and focused. I mean, this is literally what they were saying. Majorcas was the most, you know, egregious example. He's on there on Meet the Press. I watched him. He said, well, you know, it's terrifying preparing for an interview with Biden. He's so sharp. Oh my God, it's terrifying. You've got to be really well prepared. He's so focused. And you think, oh, great. Okay, fantastic. So this you know, uh, sharp and focused version of Biden sounds like he'd be a great asset on the campaign trail. Why do they keep him hidden if he's so sharp and focused? Why, don't we, why, do, why do they keep it as a private secret? It is so obvious that they're lying. Um, and, but the interesting thing is, why are they lying? Why are they propping him up? Don't they see that um, it's actually harming their interests? I mean, it's obvious that this is now a massive issue for the campaign. Um, they claim that Donald Trump is the, you know, threat to our democracy and all the things they say, well, if they really mean that, then they wouldn't risk it with this guy. And so, and so it's just, it's just absolutely incomprehensible. Um, and so they're just in this dilemma of their own making because they, 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 they know that the person that would step into the shoes, which is Kamala, who's Kamala Harris is, is even more unpopular. Uh, so they don't want to go down that road. Um, they're just paralyzed. And then underlying it all, you feel like, well, maybe it's actually a bit more sinister than that. Which is to say, the people around Biden, who are obviously running the show, I mean, there's no way that the person we see, and again, they've told us this in the past, um, that he he has these very limited days, you know, basically nothing before 10 o'clock, nothing after four o'clock. There's no way you can actually, you know, carry out the responsibilities of president. Of, of being president in, in that way. Um so clearly other people are making key decisions. They're just not being brought to him or whatever it may be. Um I mean if he can barely uh string a sentence together properly in public when he knows the cameras are on him, imagine what it's like in private despite what all these people say. And so you've you've got to wonder, is this actually more sinister? It's that they they like this setup. Because it means that they get to be in charge. You know, the people around him, the the people who run policy, the machinery um, of government. And that was one of the big critiques of, of, of Biden I had right from the beginning. That he is a weak, unprincipled, machine politician who's never really stood for anything, never believed in anything other than his own political advancement. He's changed his views on absolutely everything over the years in order to, you know, make progress up the political ladder. And so... You, someone like that gets into the top job, they're not going to push back on what the bureaucracy pushes forward in terms of policy and decision making. And I've seen all this from the inside. I've been inside of a government and you've got to be really, really aggressive in if you want to change anything in taking things on. And, and so that's the real fear. And that's why I think it's interesting in the areas of policy where he's had the most, you know, unfettered role which is foreign policy and security policy, that's the area where um, the president has the most freedom, that's the area that's been the biggest disaster. I mean, at least you, you can disagree with the content of their various pieces of legislation, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act and infrastructure and all the rest of it, the American Rescue thing that spent all that money. You know, we can absolutely disagree um, with what those major pieces of legislation did, but they were major, that is true. I mean, he did get legislation passed, but it wasn't him because that's the Congress. And so that's how that all happened. Where it really is him, where it's just the presidency really in foreign policy, it's been an absolute disaster. It's been the worst part of the Biden presidency has been the foreign policy, the appeasement of of Putin that led to the uh, invasion of Ukraine combined with the catastrophe in Afghanistan, the humiliation of America, the appeasement of Iran, that's emboldened Iran and got chaos in the Middle East, wars all over the place, a dangerous world. The, the foreign policy has been the biggest disaster of the Biden presidency. Despite you know, him being sold to us as his great foreign policy genius. The foreign policy has been the disaster. Foreign policy is where it really is just the White House and the team around him, the national security team, making decisions. And that's why this matters, because he's clearly not in charge. And so all these anonymous people in the national security bureaucracy have been pushing forward these policies or or not pushing forward anything and just sitting back. And the result has been a much more dangerous and unstable world, a really dangerous world. I mean, some people say the most dangerous it's been since the 1930s. So that's the consequence of having someone at the top who's not really in charge. And the idea that they're gonna foist it on us for another four years, is just so utterly unacceptable. So yeah, we can laugh about this, but it's not funny. It is not a joke. It is deadly serious. All right, so for the policy uh, discussion I wanna have with you today, I mean, I don't know if the word policy is even, we should dignify this idea that I'm about to share with you, you may have seen reported as a policy, but nevertheless, go with me. The policy I'd like to discuss is the policy that Barbara Lee, um, who's running for the United States Senate in California, unleashed on the world in a debate, the Senate debate this week with the other candidates, the, uh, Adam Schiff, Katie Porter, Steve Garvey for the Republicans. By the way, as we've said elsewhere, Eric Early also running for the Republican Party, should, should have been on stage, wasn't again. Um, anyway, Barbara Lee announces that she thinks the minimum wage, we've just had remember the FAST Act uh, in California, which raised the minimum wage for fast food workers to $20 an hour. Already you've seen fast food companies saying, right, we're leaving or we're firing people. That's $20 now in California for fast food workers. She wants to raise the minimum wage, wait for it, if you haven't heard, to $50 an hour. $50 an hour minimum wage. She really said this. And she said it in response to, to, to questions that I think about the minute I didn't see the debate, but then she was pressed on it and said, well, what would this mean? You know, how would businesses pay it? What would it mean? You know, quite rightly, the questions came, what would it mean for employment? Won't it mean people are laid off? Uh, companies switch from employing humans to automation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how's, how's it going to work? And she said, well, do the math. That was her answer. Do the math. Yeah, we're going to do the math. And the math is absolutely horrible because the idea that you can raise the minimum wage to $50 an hour without having absolutely catastrophic consequences. We already have in California the second highest unemployment rate in the country. I mean, it's just a joke. But the, the underlying thing that it reveals is actually a really serious point, which is the context in which she put this out there, that we should have a $50 minimum wage, was the, I'm not sure she used this exact term, but the crisis of affordability, living costs, and she's absolutely right that living costs are totally out of control. Uh, we have the highest housing costs in California in the country, highest gas prices, etc. So yes, it is true that it's hard. It is hard to live on some of these salaries. So there's no no arguing about that. But but it's just such a revealing. Um, Moment in terms of how Democrats these days think about these problems. Because the reason that it's so expensive to live in California, the reason that someone might say, yeah, well, actually, we need $50 an hour minimum wage because it's so expensive to live here. Why is it so expensive to live here? It is the direct result of Democrat policies. So their policies that have made it impossible to build anything, we've talked about that many times on this show, have elevated the cost of housing, whether that's Buying a house or renting, there's not enough, you know, it's very simple supply and demand, not enough housing capacity, the price goes up, not enough supply, got the demand, price goes up. Um, that's the result of di- d- direct and deliberate Democrat policy choices on, in terms of the environmental regulations they put on there, in terms of the taxes, they call it impact fees that, that, that are levied by government on the building of houses. And on all these things, the, why gas price is so high, um, because of the... Uh, taxes that Democrats levy on gas in California and the regulations that they put in that make it more expensive to refine and produce gas in California. It's a different standard here to the rest of the country, makes it more expensive. Um, on and on, you know, the, all the all the labor regulations that make it much more expensive to employ people. I mean, you talk to, I mean, for my organization, Golden Together, we're preparing a policy document on the business climate in California. It is just absolutely horrifying to hear the stories of people running businesses. I mean, I thought I knew a lot about it. I started a business in California. I mean, it's just, it's, it's worse than ever. It's so expensive. They layer on the regulations and the costs of compliance with labor laws and the lawsuits when you, for, for co- completely um, outrageous scam lawsuits that cost businesses a fortune, then their insurance goes up the insurance costs for many businesses are now unaffordable of course that gets passed on to the consumer because if the cost of doing business goes up then that you know to make to stay open you have to raise your prices so they're not doing anything about the actual drivers of high living costs in california their answer is to make the problem even worse by having a 50 dollar minimum wage that's going to make it even more expensive to do business in California. So what's that gonna do? It's gonna raise costs even higher. So you've got this endless upward spiral of costs. And their answer to it is not to do something about the reasons that costs are going up. It's actually the exact opposite, to try and introduce policies that will um, superficially help people But in the end, we'll raise the costs of of operating and living in California even higher. Now, look, I'm not suggesting for a moment that they're actually going to introduce a $50 minimum wage. That clearly isn't going to happen. You know, by the way, I don't think she's joking. I think it's, you know, probably what she means. And one day maybe they'll try and get there. I mean, it wasn't that long ago where 15 was seen as an extremely high level for the minimum wage. Now now they've actually passed 20 and implemented it in California. So, yeah, it does go out quickly. But the underlying point is this, that if we want to make life affordable, then we have to actually attack the drivers of high costs, the taxes and the regulations that make it so expensive to live not these ridiculous um, ways of compensating people for the original failures of policy that make life unaffordable. And joining us today on Valentine's Day, no less, of course, it has to be Jen Horn with us for California Corner. Happy Valentine's.
2: Happy Valentine's Day to you, Steve. I'm very disappointed you're not wearing that pink shirt that you look so I know. nice in.
0: Thank you so much. It's got the, uh, <laughs> if you, if you, if, if you, uh, those who, um, you know, haven't been checking out Golden Together, and why haven't you? If you go to goldentogether.com, you'll see there's a video, and I've got this very delightful show. It's got pink stripes, and it would be appropriate for today, and I didn't wear it, and I'm feeling very embarrassed about that, but it's great to see you.
2: <laughs> we'll carry on. It's okay. <laughs> exactly. Glad to see you too.
0: So, um, also, in another apology, I missed your show on Friday. It's just so about, I was on the road. I was actually in Palm Beach, Florida, and just, I was all off. You know, my my routine was disrupted, and Yet again, we didn't get to talk, but now here that's, we all right. that's all right. We're on
2: schedule good. now, and I'm exactly. excited because you're going to be coming to uh, to our event on April seventh, which is our oh, yes. conservative summit in Ontario, California. So we'll be able to to make it all up in person.
0: Exactly, unite, i.e., right in that's Empire. right. So, exactly, mm-hmm. very good. So let's let's. What's been going on? I mean, I just want to start with something because yesterday um, we we're speaking on Wednesday on Valentine's Day on Tuesday. I was up in Sacramento for do, for doing a few events, and they're all absolutely up in arms, a bit like um, everyone was in San Francisco. But, of course, it was a national story. Yet again, you have the Democrats cleaning up a city, not for the actual residents who live and work there and pay taxes, but for someone completely different. So in San Francisco, a couple of months ago for that summit, it was Xi Jinping that they (laughs) cleaned it up for, an authoritarian dictator from communist China. And now um, in Sacramento, amazingly, uh, which which I think by the numbers, incredibly, has has a proportionally worse homeless uh, problem even than than San Francisco. Uh, not a lot of people know that. It's actually mm-hmm. even worse. Um, but they cleaned it up for guess who? Leonardo DiCaprio coming to town to shoot some movie or something. <laughs> Bubbling
2: so, right under Chairman so so G, right? <laughs> right. And they're, and
0: they're putting to tickets and they go, well, you've got 24 hours to wow. get out of here and we're going to move you. You know, And it's just so insulting to everyone. Like, okay, sure, you can do it when you want to.
2: This is so much. I mean, it's just so indicative of California, though. Clean it up for company and the rest of us just have to deal with it the the rest of the time. Now, maybe they just want to make it look nice for when Leonardo DiCaprio flies over in his private jet while he's (laughs) enhancing his carbon footprint. Maybe they want to just make sure it looks good from the air. I don't know. They want to clean it up, but it is kind of ridiculous. It's very much and I know you and I have talked about this before but it's sort of the same thing where it looks like the the liberal the the far left actually in California who want it to seem like they're doing something to clean up homelessness doing nothing and i link this back to proposition 1 which is on our ballot coming up on yes. March 5th where it looks like they're taking homelessness seriously and they're going to try to trick taxpayers into it but this is just more of nothing. It's just more of the same. And they're creating these paths to make money for themselves with these cleanup efforts. Or if they want to build new housing, they make money for their friends. And everybody else still suffers. And we still have to live in filth and squalor.
0: Filth and squalor. That's it. And, and, and it's just so totally unacceptable. I know. Like, they keep going on, about, oh, we must be doing a great job with the fifth largest economy. Yeah, exactly. So, so why do we have these filthy, squalid streets in, in yeah. our cities? I mean, everywhere you go, it's so embarrassing.
2: And it's really, I mean, we've created just to, I know we weren't intending to go down this path, but we've really created a different path of homelessness. It used to be that you had the people who were really suffering financially, and then you had the people who had mental illness and drug addiction. But because all of the lawmakers who have been elected in California over the last 20 years and led the state into the ground, you've created this new avenue of homelessness where people are just choosing this as a scenario. They want to come and live on the beach or they want to live in a tent. These vagabonds that have kind of created another avenue of homelessness, which we've never even seen uh, in our state, at least for since, what, the 60s when the hippies started to come and colonize Venice Beach. Come on.
0: And, and, and also the, 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 the scam that's around all this, you know, the unbelievable amounts of money. So we've already had 20 billion or whatever else spent on homelessness and you know, it's just got worse and worse and worse. Just that's just in the last few years. And then now they're raising taxes again. They call it a bond. But, I've got, you know, we had a really good discussion with Susan Shelley on a past episode, if someone wants to She's check it out. She's fabulous on this. Really yeah. doing a deep dive on this proposition one. But, you know, the, the quick sort of headline is it's, it, you know, it's a bond. What that actually is, is a tax increase, but only worse because mm-hmm. you have to pay it back over time with interest added. They claim even, even, the, even if you take them at face value, right, the total number of people helped by this, um, you know, was it $6.4 billion or whatever? It's okay. gonna be much more than that. It's something like 11,000, even on their numbers. We have wow. 170,000 people suffering on the streets. And so it's a tiny pinprick, even on their terms, right? For this enormous amount of money and increase in taxes. And then when you dig into it, it's even worse because they go on about it, it's mental health. It's more money for mental health. It's actually less money for mental health because what's hidden in this in this proposition is that they are actually cutting the amount of money that counties, can spend on mental health services. So it's actually a cut to a mental limit. health services. That's it's right. absolutely unbelievable. And then even, the you know, they're selling it, the ads all going about veterans, veterans homeless. Of course, that's a de- desperate situation. We all feel so outraged about that. Veterans with mental health problems on our streets. And again, the total number that even they are claiming is like a thousand people. Yeah, when it's just it's just it's just so insulting. It's exactly as you say, it's going to end up more money for the homeless industrial complex and all their connected cronies and and, and, and people in the nonprofits and in the affordable housing. That's actually totally a ripoff in terms of its, it's cost because they're not dealing with the regulations that make it so expensive to build anything, etc. Exactly. It's just so maddening.
2: And truly, I mean, I always believe that this is not necessarily an issue of of shelter because I think the bulk are mentally ill and drug addicted people who have access to shelters but choose not to use it. But if you are going to make this simply a housing issue, the fact that they don't open this up to, uh, to the private sector and instead of just giving no bid contracts to all of their cronies and their friends, and as you mentioned, the regulations that come with it, I mean, it's insulting when you see how much money it costs to build one of those little tiny houses that they use as shelter. 800-
0: thousand dollars in let somebody bid on this and then
2: you stimulate business in california but it'll never happen with them
0: no exactly that's the bottom line for anything sensible it'll never happen with but it won't happen that's right that's right by the way i was in i was it's just a really interesting i was in sacramento as i mentioned and i also had some meetings about our housing initiative and that and you just get this overwhelming sense i mean that that, when you said it'll never happen Mm -hmm. it with with that, Because we're also trying to pursue it through a legislative route and trying to get it through, you know, just to make some changes happen. So we reform these environmental regulations in particular that allow these endless lawsuits that block everything from being built. And, right. you know, the message you get from people there is, well, yeah, we can't. It's a good idea. You're right. But the unions won't allow it. The unions mm-hmm. won't buy it. It'll never happen. The, the unions. It's like, who runs this state? The unions. Who elected them? Nobody. It Nobody. is just outrageous.
2: And they put their th- their fingerprint there. I mean, the weight of their endorsement. It's how we get all of these elected officials when the unions buy yes. in.
0: No, no. I'm. Mean, funnily enough, I was just talking on on the, on the on the on the way to school this morning. My my, I was just mentioning it. And we we're talking about it with my boys. You see, that's the kind of <laughs> conversation we have on the way <laughs> to school. That. Like, what's the union issue? But, they, but like, they were saying, like, what? Well, how, how? Why do they? Because we ended up, like one of my sons said, so they basically have a veto. I said, yeah, they have a veto
2: on Why? everything.
0: And I said, well, it's not just the money. And what we talk about the money, the donations. That's true, right? They give donations mm-hmm. to the candidates. It's also the manpower, right? The, the, they 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 do door knocking and they're out there on the streets and that's you know, the them core out. of their campaigns. The t- so it's that. And then the really kind of insidious thing is it's not even like we won't give you money if you vote the wrong way. It's it's more aggressive than that. It's like we will fund a competitor to knock you out in the primary if yeah. you don't vote our way. That's actually what they say.
2: And how many times have we seen that? And I mean, I look around in Los Angeles where I live. It's, it's how we get Gascon. It's how we got Karen Bass over Rick Caruso. It's exactly how we got into the situation that we're in because they, they fund, they give energy. There's threatening phone calls to turn people out and volunteer. I mean, they've got an army. And so then the rest of us wonder how we compete with that army.
0: I know. Well, we got to because otherwise uh, literally nothing's going to change. Well, it, it will change. It will get worse. <laughs> Everything will get worse. OK, what are the other So, what are the other things? I there's, do there's have, an, have yeah, something
2: for you about Karen Bass since yeah, we, since I brought her up. I hope you enjoy this story as much as I do. But um, there are a lot of buildings in downtown Los Angeles mm. that have their sky rise like their sky rise. Their buildings, there's 25 stories, a lot mm-hmm. of them. And some of them, you may have seen the images, uh, some of the videos have been going viral where people have been graffitiing these buildings, like every level, all the way up to the sky. Yeah. Well, also, there is a new uh, thing that's going on where people are climbing these buildings, I guess using the stairs. I'd imagine homeless people have probably taken them over as well. I'm sure there's people living inside these buildings. But they climb up to the top and they parachute off these buildings in Los Angeles, which At some point, I just say, you know, let's go with Darwinism. Like, I don't even want to issue a a warning. Like, if you were dumb enough to jump off of a building in downtown LA, let's just see what happens. But Karen Bass actually held a press conference this week, Steve. And she came out and said that jumping off of buildings is not a good idea. (laughs) because captain obvious who i like to call care bear realized that maybe it's not great that people are parachuting for social media off of the building so she said there's a warning instead of i mean most sensible people would probably come out and say if we catch you trying to jump off a building we will arrest you or maybe we'll put security on top of that building so that we can prevent people from jumping off with the parachute on their back no care bear gets up there and she goes you know it's a bad idea. So we're going to build a fence, but it's going to oh. take a few days. So those of you who are thinking about jumping, just don't do it. So I love it. The woman who's been in, con- who was in Congress forever, who did not like the border wall, who did not like border protection, who do- who probably would make the argument that walls don't work to president Trump now wants to put a fence up on top of this, these sky, <laughs> these sky. Right, So wait, that people ra- don't jump off of them. Well,
0: these walls are racist. I mean, what is she doing?
2: Of course has they she, are. I mean, has
0: she done a survey of the <laughs> ethnicity of the jumpers? You know, like this is just terrible. We need a DEI audit, I and think then we'll you're know whether the right. fence is racist.
2: There's <laughs> got to be a commission to to figure out why they're doing this, that somehow oppressing people who just want to jump off of a building. It's just unbelievable. And then I started thinking to myself, and I don't know. This is so unfounded, but this is where you know, I always consider myself a commentator. My background is in journalism, but I think people need to be honest about what they do. And I give my opinion, but the like little journalist like feather inside of my brain started ticking. And I said, wait a second. There was a story about the L.A. City Councilman Jose Wazar. You remember him? Yeah. He was the guy who was taking bribes in lunch bags, like thousands of dollars in cash in these lunch bags that he was making deals with China to build these buildings. Guess what? These these buildings, buildings. they're the China buildings. And I thought, I wonder if anybody is investigating that if maybe they stopped the construction after Jose Wazar got popped for bribery. You think?
0: Interesting. That's right. Because when I I saw the graffiti story, which you're right. Yeah, has gone around that. I read and said these, these, they they were built, and then the Chinese company just sort of gave up, ran out of money, whatever.
2: Yeah, or lunch bags Amazing. full of cash, or Maybe it's apparently. something to
0: do with this, exactly.
2: I think we need to do how further investigating. But yeah, so now well, from graffiti to jumpers. With these people, especially <laughs>
0: exactly. anything, anything to do with property, you can be sure it's like very sleazy. By the way, one thing it reminds me of, I hadn't thought about this for years, but it was, it's just a reminder of, this it's a slight tangent, but it's, it's a really important reminder of how government gets out of control. Back in the UK, when I was working in 10 Downing Street, there was... I got really obsessed with the process through which regulations are sort of imposed on the country because Mm -hmm. so often they're just generated by the bureaucracy and they just go around this approval process. I don't need to go into the whole detail. I think I've done it on a previous show, actually. And there's a sort of committee of the ministers and they they'd sent a letter and they have like 48 hours to say to object. And if they don't object, that means that it goes through. And so they use the, the kind of weight of paperwork against Against right. everyone. So, any kind of new regulation, it just kind of automatically goes through because no one has time to read it or object. And also, these ministers and the committees, they don't want to object to someone else's thing because then their thing will be blocked. So, basically, the default is everything goes through. And okay. one of my uh, friends and colleagues was a minister, um, government in the cabinet. And he just couldn't, he, he wouldn't play the game. And so he would read everything, he would have people, and he would object to everything that he thought was stupid. <laughs> and, he, and it made him so unpopular because he was blocking everyone else's stuff. And I, I remember one. Him. And yes, he's brilliant. <laughs> and one of the things he did, this is real, like the health secretary in the British, in the UK, remember, this is the conservative government. Mm-hmm. Is, from, it wasn't even the guy, it was just his department issued a regulation requiring every single government building in the UK, in England and Wales by the way that includes schools hospitals mm-hmm. everything right every single one had to draw up and publish a suicide prevention plan for people jumping off their buildings come on <laughs> no, it was real. And they had to, not, like, they had to, and so this is exactly how sort of ridiculous time-wasting bureaucracy happens. That someone thinks, oh, you know, maybe there was one case, like one person yeah. jumped off a hospital roof or something. But if so, it's
2: bad enough where you actually climb a building to jump off, I don't know if a manual is going to stop you at that point. No, exactly. I
0: <laughs> but this is, I mean, it's just such an interesting insight into how it all happens, how it all mm-hmm. proliferates. Because just someone in the bureaucracy has some idea and then it just is set loose and no one stops it.
2: No. And, this, and it, we just comply all I know. the time. So anyway, so
0: we have the, suicide. I don't know what happened to that, but anyway, it just reminded me like the Karen Bass with the fence. That's, that's actually better than drawing up a suicide prevention plan for every Put single Put the fence up. Exactly. Penalty. Exactly. <laughs> so la, la, <laughs> it's so crazy. What about the, la, the um, last thing, um, the debate? There was another Senate mm-hmm. debate. What, what happened?
2: Yeah. So we had Adam Schiff and Katie Porter and Barbara Lee and Steve Garvey on stage. And just, it, it's more of the same. I mean, what really I think frustrates me about watching this is it's becoming coronation of Adam Schiff to become yeah, the next yeah. Senator of California, which just me, I think that's really the worst case scenario for for all of us. There were some terrible ideas being batted around. Um, as a Republican, I... I'm kind of torn. I'm wondering where you are on this. I would support a rock running against Adam Schiff. And I applaud Steve Garvey for getting into this process. I just don't feel like it is. He's been giving punchy enough answers. He's got Adam Schiff on the stage. He has the opportunity to really fight back. And it is overwhelming, I think, to try to get a handle on all the issues when you are Mm -hmm. not in politics. But Mm -hmm. I really do kind of feel sad that we don't have someone like an Eric Early who has kind of a, the handle on the issues on that stage just to add to the conversation. I agree and to with give that. I said that and I said choices. that for, and I
0: had Eric on the show and people can listen to me yeah. to just a couple of weeks ago and he's very clear and strong on that and he knows the and you know he's he's a very strong conservative mm-hmm. and I understand the argument that actually you know California is more of a you know That doesn't fly as well in California as it may in other parts of the country. I get it. But then there are ways of explaining it and framing it, because I think in the end, conservative ideas are common sense ideas that most people agree with. So if you actually lay it out and say, you know, criminals should be held accountable... Um, yep. and, and, you know, you, you shouldn't you, we shouldn't have the highest taxes in the country as well as the worst outcome. You know what I mean? Like if you go through individual things, I think that you know, I mean, it actually reminds me of something Mrs. Thatcher said um, where she said in her I'm not going to do her accent, but like, well, it's something like a famous saying was, well, my dear, it turns out, don't you know, that the facts of life inevitably turn out to be conservative.
2: Yeah.
1: And it's
0: just like a really sort of simple, basic way of putting it. like in the end, it's just common sense.
2: I just feel like by having a, a different perspective up on that stage, we're going to learn more about who the Democrat candidates really are. We're going to learn more about who Steve Garvey is. I feel like there was just um, there wasn't a lot of push and pull. And so you have people like Adam Schiff who are saying like false things that Donald Trump packed the Supreme Court. No, he didn't. Packing the wow. Supreme Court means wow. adding justices. And there needs to be someone. So up he didn't there. push
0: back and say that's a lie.
2: He did, it. he did have a moment. Steve Garvey did have a great moment. And because I think he is so subtle, sometimes they get lost a little bit. But mm-hmm. he did have a moment where he said, Donald Trump is not a threat to our democracy. The threat to our democracy is your idea of ending the filibuster and packing the Supreme Court. But then mm-hmm. Adam Schiff said, well, Donald Trump packed the Supreme Court. Well, no, he didn't. Wow. He wow. did what every president would do. And he made an appointment when there was a vacancy. And So I think there was room for more pushback. I also feel like there was just a lot of bad ideas passed around on the stage. And I'm also starting to take issue with the fact that the debate moderators in every debate that we've seen, and there's another Senate debate next week, create a section on homelessness, they create a section on the economy, mm-hmm. and then they create a section on Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not wow. an issue wow. for a Ca- for a California senator. I mean, I want to know about the real issues. I'm tired of trying to pin people down to whether they think Donald Trump is great or Donald Trump is terrible. I think we need to be yes. actually having conversations about real issues and not creating Donald Trump. No, I totally as an agree issue.
0: with that. I I say that all the time because I'm yeah. I say, look, I'm sorry. Yeah, I get it. Okay. Um, Trump, Trump, Trump. You know, Trump. You don't you're, like it. You're, him, fine, you're don't offended by Donald, Donald Trump. I right. get it, but these elections are not about who you are offended by. It's about what affects your life. And how are you going to vote
2: to represent us in the in the United States Senate? And so I feel like we waste a lot of time in these debates talking about Donald Trump and really even for that matter, Joe Biden, because we need to be talking about the issues that are impacting our state. Our state is we are in a dire position right now. Our whole country is. But certainly in California, we're seeing the effects of what bad leadership can do. And so what can you do in the Senate to make things better for us? And I think that's the real conversation that I'm still wanting to hear people
0: have yeah. and instead so, so you say there's there's one more next week
2: there's another one next week it's going to be in hollywood i think at universal studios uh-huh. um i forget who's hosting that one um but you know honestly it's a reminder that the jungle primary really was a death sentence for california conservatives yeah. and yeah. for even for even for moderates it's created a one party uh, a one-party state we've seen one party rule for 20 years now yes. especially in statewide office and it's just unfortunate that we're in this position where it will probably really agree. be a choice between Schiff and Porter and how how is that benefiting anyone even if, if Schiff is happens, ultimately an the outrage. winner at the end of the day. And it by is. by the way,
0: this is these and you know the, the the really disgusting thing about it is that the Democrats in there, you you see you pick it up in the news stories so the media reflect this but also the Democrats in their statements they they they're actually saying that that is the you know that's what what is in the interest of California to have yeah. two Democrats and and they and they are they are kind of warning that you might have if you don't support Katie, Bob, you might have a Republican in the general election. I, I mean, know. isn't that these are the people that never stop lecturing us about democracy and they're saying re, democracy means no choice, you know, either sort of you know really it's dark exactly blue right. or dark blue, and it's just it's just. It's, they don't even see how contradictory it is to well, all of their endless lectures about saving our democracy.
2: And it's so purposeful because they try to mislead people by saying that our democracy is under fire, when really, truly what kills it is the fact that we don't have any opposing thoughts. Well, I think it's points. a really,
0: if that does happen, I think you and I, and you, we should really do so, we should really go on the war path. Actually, I'm with you. And say, these Democrats and their support, you know, have de- are denying democracy. Like, I keep making this point, like, even when you have, you know, put, you know, like a like, really sort of unfair matchup, like last time for governor, mm-hmm. where you have incredibly well-funded incumbent Gavin Newsom and, you know, a, a great guy, Brian Daly, who, you know, I did my best to promote and, and I know you did too, yeah. you know, but just didn't have the money and the backing. But, and, and so really was just didn't kind of have the kind of impact any candidate would need to have to do well in California because it's a big state. He got 40%. I know 40 percent and actually a little bit over 40 percent. Gavin Newsom actually got 59 points. You know, so like 40 percent of voters, if, if we end up in this situation with 40 percent of voters, at least I mean, it's Was probably more different. now are totally disenfranchised. I
2: know. And, and
0: by the people who lecture us about democracy, it's absolutely outrageous. See, I'm I getting think... very fired up. About uh, and I, and I think terrible. the next
2: thing te- is seriously that we should work on together and that we all of us who listen to this podcast, all of us who love California and want to fight for the state, there needs to be a change in how ballot measures are written. There needs yeah. to be a change in how these things are presented to the voters, because, for instance, Proposition oh, 47 one, and, yeah. and 57, right, the Safe Neighborhoods Act, all of this stuff. And what do we get? Well, we get. Chaos and we get crime yes. and we get lawlessness. With the jungle primary, voters in California voted on that. Why? Because they try to make it seem sensible that the top two vote getters should move forward in an election. Well, then you've created a state that has literally one party rule when you have, as we mentioned and circling back, the unions who go in and power these elections so that really half the state has no choice.
0: It's actually worse than that. I mean, you're 100% right, everything you said, and I'll add to it, which is that you've got the top two. By the way, just as an aside, before I make the point, it was really interesting. Uh, one of the events I did yesterday in Sacramento was a think tank, the mm-hmm. Pacific Research Institute, PRI, their kind of policy conference. And these two topics were the first two questions. Because You know, I made my normal remarks about how, you know, just setting out a vision for California, how are we are going to win? It's possible, it's hard, but we can do it, et cetera, et cetera. And I say, we love that. That's great. But... What about these ballot initiatives? They're written by a partisan politician. The attorney, you know right. the, the title and summary, and then the next question was about the top two, and just on these on the on the ballot thing, there's such an easy alternative available, which is the Legislative Analyst's Office, which exactly. is actually genuinely independent and nonpartisan. And actually, for those who might be skeptical because they're based in Sacramento, they these are the people who've been directly challenging Gavin Newsom just in the last few weeks about his budget numbers. So but he they comes should at, write the title and summary. Right, they really are independent. You really can trust them. They're, they're mm-hmm. there. Like they're, we're already paying for them the legislative analyst office they're the ones that should write the ballot initiatives because it's so misleading i got my ballot now as we all did in california and you read proposition one it's just a total it's just just a lie what it is i mean it's not it's not that's not look the words are connected to the issue right so it's not like it's some completely different thing like it's actually about you know um of water but rather than mm-hmm. mental you know they, they use the words that are connected to the ballot initiative but it's a really misleading description of what it is the second thing on top two it this is where i said it's actually worse is that it's really ended up affecting the legislature because there where you have these lower profile races where you have legislative assembly districts or senate mm-hmm. districts and you know it's a bit dice you know like and you have multiple candidates and there's a feeling that actually because of the union influence and so on, you've got, you're going to end up, there's an expectation that you might end up with two Democrats. It becomes self-fulfilling. Why? Because the business community, and this is what's really, you know, been so um, bad about the top two thing. You know, the, the business organizations, the Chamber of Commerce, the business, all the, all the organizations that you would expect would be for kind of pro-business, lower taxes, less regulation, Republican candidates. They've ended up. For the last 10 or plus years, ending up with a strategy that says, well, look, we're going to have two Democrats, so we might as well support the least bad option. Mm-hmm. And so now you've had the bi- everyone funding the Democrats, so the Republicans have just run out of, of, of their institutional support. I mean, you used to be able to say, well, and you know, it's a bit simplistic, but unions back the Democrats and business backs the Republicans. Now everyone's backing the Democrats. And so you end up with the self-fulfilling thing. And that's why you have these super majorities where they can push everything through. And in the Assembly, you have uh, 62 Democrats, 18 Republicans, and in the Senate, 32 Democrats, eight Republicans. And they can just steamroll anything through. It's as if they're irrelevant, but that is a direct result of this top 2 thing. So it's re- it really has and by the way the whole top I wasn't here when it was passed it was sold to Californians mm-hmm. as a way of bringing moderation and Correct. centrism because you'll have you know people would appeal to the middle. Well, well what's happened in the last 10 years we've gone way off to the left way that's off to all the that's extreme. Happened, and
2: everybody's had to shift with it. And so exactly. now, and then that's what, then there's no conversation about how to fix the state. I mean, we look, it would be great if you thought oh, everybody that agreed with me would be in power and I would just get everything done. But the best, most effective forms of government is when compromise is met. And when you have two sides, yes. putting the best together to create real change. And that's not going to happen in California unless we make a change to yes. how these initiatives are important. are written and how our election system is run in the state, yeah, It's just not going to
0: change the more and more the more i get involved in all this the more i come to that exact conclusion mm-hmm. you know it's really important i mean look i still think that we can make some progress without it i still think that the numbers are there for and the and the and the you know the values and the beliefs of the electorate are there to win statewide that's that's an, because as, as i just said you know like brian darley got 40, 40 point whatever percent. Right.
2: it's not that so, far away
0: you know we can do it with hard work and focus But Mm -hmm. the legislature where you've had all these top two races result in this totally lopsided situation, that really does need to change.
2: It absolutely does. And that's just the, that's just from a statewide level. I mean, we could talk probably for hours about also how to heal the Republican Party, because our party is now divided into to the grassroots and the establishment and nobody wants to work together. We need yeah, somebody well that, who can that, marry we have that.
0: To, yeah, well, that's got yeah. to change as well. You know, for sure. That's for another day. We'll we'll figure it all out, Jen, you and I.
2: <laughs> all the world's problems will be solved exactly. by the end of our time together. Steve. Fantastic. Great to see
0: you. Happy Valentine's <laughs> you again. Too. See you soon. Thanks. And joining us for Candidate Corner today, Chris Coulomb, who I've met a couple of times now on my travels around California. Who's, and every single time, Chris, it's great to see you. I, I, I watch you in action. I think you are exactly the kind of person that we would want to see elected. Tell us just briefly, you know, the facts, right? Where are you running? What are you running for?
1: Certainly. Thanks, Steve. It's great to see you again. Uh, I'm running in Northern California, which is the Golden Gate Bridge to the Oregon border. And so I'm I'm there in my hometown and I'm really ready to represent and bring a lot of change uh, for the future.
0: So that is amazing. So that is that one of the biggest. I mean, I suppose Alaska's got enormous districts, but I mean, from the Golden Gate Bridge to the northern border with Oregon, that is an that is a, that is some district.
1: I believe it's the second largest.
0: Tell us the, the political situation. So who's the incumbent and and, you know, what's it looking like? How's your race looking? Tell us about that, first of all.
1: So currently the representative in office is Jared Huffman. Uh, He's been here for going on 12 years and really, this is a very blue area with a lot of change coming. One of the things that i noted even two years ago, the last time I ran and the first time I've run uh, was that there is a shift and a lot of people are, excuse me, they're watching what's happening, not only in their own homes, but in the district and the state, and that is really the consequence of poor policy coming to root. And that is in the drugs, the crime, the fentanyl, et cetera. Even here in a very affluent county like Marin, where you know many people are living in five, ten million dollar homes, they're even there, they're seeing these impacts. And so I feel that is part of this shift that's happening where even the most affluent are watching this change, whereas in Sonoma County and Mendocino County, they've, they've experienced this uh, poor policy consequence for quite some time now. So I think we're watching that shift. So when you, when you say it's very blue, I mean, so Marin County, you know, famously
0: very Democratic. But as you go further north, does it I mean, would it, is it simplistic to say it just becomes a bit more rural, and a bit more Republican? Is that is that roughly what's happening in, in your district?
1: Yeah, I think that's fair. As you get up to the Oregon border, it turns red. There's a bit of purple between Sonoma and then a slight more of a reddish hue going into Mendocino County, and then it kind of goes back purple again for Humboldt County, with the remaining two counties of Del Norte and Trinity largely deep red. Uh, but as mm-hmm. and that's your your deeply rural, very agricultural based uh, industries. So, so is most of the population in the in the southern part. Most certainly. It's a a very diverse spread, rich, very densely populated at the south and then uh, dispersing quite a bit in the very north.
0: So you must have such a range of issues going on. I mean, tell us about one, though, because I remember really this strike. It was very striking to me. It was a really interesting example, which you don't always get of the current of the incumbent, the Democrat Huffman um, doing something because, you know, in the United States Congress, the federal level, with really damaging impacts at the local level in the district.
1: Yes. Yeah. The main thing that he is uh, leading the charge on is the destruction of the dams. And so he's effectuated that uh, in the Klamath already. So there's three of four dams that are set to remove with, I think, some very significant negative consequences that we're already beginning to witness up there. However, that's not an expertise I have for that region. But where it is relevant to this particular district is his attempt to get rid of Lake Pillsbury and Scott Dam, and that is 26 billion gallons of fresh water in Lake County that then feeds Mendocino County, the Russian mm-hmm. River, into Sonoma County, and then even into Marin County, where they receive between 75 and 25 percent of their water supply. And he is he has really made it a major priority of his to make sure that we spend at least a half a billion dollars to get rid of this water supply in a time where we're, we're witnessing substantial water insecurity. And so I, I'm trying to highlight that issue because it will become a severe consequence to the region.
0: It just seems insane. I want to break it down a bit. Um, first of all, wh- what is he doing? In, in What's the congressional role here? What's his role in, in something that sounds like it should be a county,
1: certainly a state or county decision? And so he, he's kind of doing two facets. One of them is just a regional leadership role where he's using the office that he holds to try Mm -hmm. and create uh, partnerships and to create basically a narrative that is Mm -hmm. to convince the local populace, the local voters to support his message. But at the other side of it, he's also, I believe, using much of his influence in organizations or agencies like FERC, which is the entity that would really be the final say. What West- What's
0: the acronym stand for?
1: Uh, it's the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Okay. And so he has, you know, he has done what he can to try and get them to approve this destruction process that PG&E is requesting. So. PG&E is a quote-unquote private entity that owns yeah. the assets, uh, such as Scott Dam. So, because
0: because this is a hydro producing dam, hydroelectric as, yes, power. It, yeah. Yes,
1: and so they are they are the ones that would give the final go ahead that says yes, you may destroy the dams. And so they, uh, PG&E, have requested that or are about to make their final uh, request to FERC. And through that process, we've really watched Huffman shepherd that sequence and very much champion the removal of these dams.
0: Interesting. Interesting. So what, I, I'm fascinated by this because it, it, it sounds so on its face ridiculous. So why do PG&E want to get rid of their plant?
1: Well, you know, they're, they're a private entity, and I don't believe that they've really done anything to invest in the infrastructure over the last few decades. We, we've watched it really become neglected, and I, this is their way to exit it. Um, but the, the point that I like to make is that we have the infrastructure at hand and we know from California's position on, on dams, once these dams are destroyed, they're not coming back. And so while they may be a hydroelectric power generation facility, uh, they're also a water storage for this for this region.
0: Yes. Well, let's get to the water in a second. But I think just before we leave the the electricity part, I wonder if it's to do with the fact that it's crazy. I know people just can't believe it when they hear this that hydroelectric power is not cons- is not classified as renewable energy by the state right. of California. So yeah. I'm guessing that because there, are, you know, there may be incentives or subsidies or I don't know what for the utilities in California to migrate to renewable. Um, and, and, and they don't consider hydroelectric to be renewable. So they basically are treating this as if it's you know, a coal plant.
1: Yeah, I think there's absolutely an element there. And I, I think there's another one that's even more insidious and that is the intent of PG&E to get rid of some of their power generation water storage facilities in order to create greater scarcity in the resources they provide, which would then allow them to charge more per the unit to the, yeah. Yeah, to the uh, consumers
0: another example of the complete madness and lack of common sense in our state at every level now let's talk about the water aspect which is mad you know when we keep hearing about the drought and and endlessly told well we may have had a wet year but we you know we can't relax about the drought so here they go i mean the the normal um argument around water storage that you hear is they're not building enough water storage true right um California's passed a bond. I wasn't here then, but was it 2000? When was it? 2000? Maybe I was here. it
1: 2014? I want to say. 40, yeah. I was here.
0: Yeah, I was here since 2012. I wasn't as engaged in California politics as I am now. Um, 2014 passed a bond for water storage. None of it used, not been built. This is even worse. This is actually, n- never mind not building new storage. This is actually removing storage that we have.
1: Correct. It's pretty, it's pretty astounding. And right now the budgets are projecting roughly a half a billion dollars to remove these facilities. So we're going to pay a half a billion dollars plus interest to have less water storage, less water facilities. And so it truly is astounding that this is the path we're going on. And the, the other point I would add is that we're also at a historic point with funding for these types of projects. You've got what are commonly called the bipartisan, the bipartisan infrastructure improvement act, which allocated $1.2 trillion specifically for our infrastructure improvement. And of that 1.2 trillion, 550 billion is specifically allocated for water and water improvement, including water storage, water conveyance and so on. And so we can presume that with Huffman's you know, focus on removing the dams, that he is not seeking those monies from the federal bills in order to improve or uh, repair our water storage.
0: But he's presumably, I mean, you tell me, what, how is he selling this? Um, is it, I mean, are we back to the, you know, the, the salmon and, and all that? I mean, what, what is the justification for this? As, as, as he, Let's be fair to him. What's his yeah. argument?
1: So there's two. And to quote him, he's for the fish. And that is the thing that, uh, that really is kind of the, the main thesis here for him. And that is that the dams are precluding precluding the salmon from accessing another several miles of the watershed, which would increase their ability to, you know, respawn, etc. And so my argument is, fish ladder. I mean, there are exactly solutions. right. Not a half a billion dollars for a fish ladder. I
0: mean, can, can I just say this is like it's so maddening. It's I can't, you know, I've i like I, I say this all the time when we have these kinds of conversations. I love nature. I cherish nature. It's one of the reasons right. I love California so much. I am an Absolutely. environmentalist. Um, ecosystems really matter. You can't just, you know, you remove one piece and you have all sorts of unintended and unpredictable consequences. People who really understand nature and the countryside and rural life understand that better than anyone, right? So this is not about, oh, well, let's just, you know, screw the fish whatever. That is not what was it. There are ways around this. I remember years ago, when I ran a company back in England, we had a, cli- climate, uh, a client, it um, wasn't PG&E, but it was Pacific, well, maybe it was, the, it was, I think they were called Pacific Power. Maybe that was a precursor, I don't know. Um, and, I, and, and then there was another one, Utah Power, and we were talking about all this stuff. And there was a whole, that's the, the first time I heard the term ever, salmon ladders, right? right. And I thought, what's a salmon ladder? and they explained it to me. So, so you, can, you can deal with the problem. Can you just tell us what, what a fish ladder is? You use that phrase.
1: Certainly, uh, it's an it's a apparatus that is designed to allow the fish to effectively scale around a abutment or any type of dam and make sure that the fish can access in a natural sequence that they're used to. You know, They obviously work their way up rivers, up you know, these uh, rapids and so on. And so this allows them to circumvent the dams themselves and then continue their uh, pathway up the watershed. And so this is certainly another opportunity to use it.
0: It's so common sense. And they're, and they're just causing, you know, wanting to cause this massive, you know, costly havoc. Correct. To, I mean, it's just, it's just beyond belief. Um, quickly, what are the other issues you're going to be campaigning on?
1: Uh, the main one right now is, is making sure Americans can afford to be American. Uh, I've got a bill that I've written, and there's two parts to it. One of them is to exempt all veterans from paying federal income tax for life, and so uh, and that's on the first hundred and eighty-two thousand dollars of income. So all it is is an automatic deduction uh, for the first hundred and eighty-two thousand. It gives everyone that served another thirty thousand dollars in their pocket. I believe that's a, a great way, a very simple way for us to make sure that we reduce or even end the amount of veterans that are entering unhoused conditions, and also potentially going on to to SNAP and uh, any of the other problems that we're watching happen with the veteran community. And then parallel to that is the suspension of the federal income tax on the first $182,000 for all Americans. And the idea is that we're allowing everyone to keep the money that they have earned. This is money that is obviously not going as far as it once did, And so as a way to make sure that we are keeping the government hand out of the pockets of those that are suffering the most, we let them keep the money and they will spend that far more efficiently than any government program. So that will go into the local programs, local businesses, local government Uh, will capture that through sales tax and so on. And this allows Americans to, again, afford to be American.
0: Uh, 108. Well, I I mean, I love that. I've got a whole I mean, it's a different it's a variation of. But when you make the point that, that it's not like you're not taxed, you can, but the taxes go locally, sales Correct. tax and whatever local and state taxes. I, I so yes. agree with that because, I mean, you, you know, it's really, it's really, I hadn't heard you say um, either of those before. Really, really clear, great ideas because there's so, I mean, part of the problem is we've got this massively over-centralized federal government that was never Correct. intended to be that. and. And you've got to kind of starve it of funds, you know, because they're, they're, they're just wading into all sorts of areas that they shouldn't be. Um, Correct. And I love the focus on veterans. And that leads me to the final question, just to tell us a little bit about yourself um, and your background and what you would bring to this role.
1: Well, I, I was very lucky to grow up in Sonoma County. I received my Eagle Scout at 18. I then went into the military. Uh, they... Saw fit to support me and uh, offered me offered to cover my college, so they gave me a full ride scholarship to the University of San Francisco, where I studied uh, politics. I got to partake in a few fellowships. I traveled to Washington D.C., where I then studied international law and organizations through Europe. I went to the International Chamber, uh, excuse me, International Criminal Courts, the UN, uh, European Council, many of these uh, places that we're watching in the news today. After I came home, I got commissioned in the United States Army. I became an infantry officer there, and eventually was also supported by the military to get my master's degree. Simultaneously, I served at the Senator Daniel K. Inouye Asia-Pacific Center for Security Studies, where we focused largely on security issues for the Asia-Pacific. So I got to learn a great deal about international affairs, international relations, uh, and that, I believe, gave me a great deal of insight for international and national policy many of which I'm trying to bring to Congress because of all of the things that we're watching happening in the international arena today. I've also done several small businesses where I then interface with much of the the state government and realized that there's a very adversarial relationship between the state of California and small business. And uh, very much uh, learned a lot there.
0: Listen to that. I mean, I'm just speaking to my audience now. Isn't this exactly the kind of person you want representing us in Congress? I mean, just so impressive. You're a really impressive individual. I'm really, really thrilled to have met you and to introduce you to the audience today. Uh, Just before we leave it, could you tell everyone, you know, where they can follow your campaign? I know you you need money. Um, It's a Democrat district. It's very important um, to support Chris. Tell us how people can do that.
1: Thank you. And it's always a pleasure to talk with you. I'm... Uh, you can find me at chris2congress.com. It's all spelled out, chris Congress, dot com. I'm at chris2congress, same spelling on all major platforms. Uh, and you know, I welcome you to contact me, chris, at chris2congress.com for my email. I'm very happy to answer questions and uh, look forward to hearing from you.
0: All right, here's something I want to get off my chest this week. You know, this story that's been, you know, um, going around about Trump and NATO. I mean, it's just so infuriating. It's not, I don't want to even get into the substance of it. I want to focus on the media treatment of it because it's a long time, I think, that I've seen such an egregious example of media, you know, deliberate, you, lying. There's no other word for it. And you can say it's disinformation because it's deliberately putting out false information. It's an absolute lie. And, and here's the anatomy of it. And We need to understand how this happens because we got to watch out. Um, they do it the whole time. And here's a, such an obvious example. So I think you all, you know, it's a big, big story. So I'm sure you will know the example I'm talking about. Let's just play the clip. This is what Donald Trump said at a rally um, at, over, over a recent weekend about NATO.
1: The Secretary General Stoltenberg well I don't know if he is anymore, but he was my biggest fan. He said, all these presidents came in, they'd make a speech, they'd leave, and that was a bit, and they all owed money and they wouldn't pay it. I came in, I made a speech, and I said, you got to pay up. They asked me that question. One of the presidents of a big country stood up and said, well, sir, uh, if we don't pay and we're attacked by Russia, will you protect us? I said, you didn't pay? You're delinquent? He said, yes. Let's say that happened. No, I would not protect you. In fact, I would encourage them to do whatever the hell they want. You got to pay. You got to pay your bills. And the money came flowing in.
0: So it is obvious. We just heard it. He's talking in the past tense. He is describing, no doubt embellishing, this is Donald Trump after all. He is describing a negotiation that happened in the past where he was using leverage in order to try and urge, in this case, this particular NATO member to pay more for its own defense. A goal which, by the way, previous presidents of all parties are shared. Obama, um, it's now been well documented, was furious with NATO for not not spending enough and made exactly these points in his meetings with NATO leaders, including David Cameron, um, who I worked for. So nothing unusual in what, what Trump was saying there, he just did it in his own way. So he's telling a story about the past. What did the media do with this? They turned it and you you just watch the headline. I mean, you see it in the in the, in the the lines that were at the bottom of the screen on CNN. And in the most egregious example, I heard it on NPR in the news bulletin where they said Donald Trump's pledge or Donald Trump's promise, whatever term they use, to encourage Russia to invade NATO countries. It was nothing of the sort. They turned a, a story he told from the past into some promise for the future. And even the story wasn't actually... A public invitation to Russia. Did you know anything? It was a th- it was saying it was part of a negotiation with the country, and by the way, a negotiation that worked. And the most astonishing part of all of this was was a, was a tweet that I saw, a post that I saw on X from the from Biden's NATO ambassador, the current U.S. ambassador to NATO, who, as part of the pushback to this, in the sort of thing that everyone, oh, how dare he say this, um, put out a chart showing NATO expenditure. I think it was even non-US NATO expenditure, totally proving Trump's point. If you, it went year by year. And in the first year that Trump took off, is 2017, a massive increase from the previous years under Obama. And then in the chart that she put out, you look at the first year that Biden is there and it's a massive drop. So she's proving Trump's point that this negotiation actually worked. But, the but, and now this has become this massive thing, totally falsely put out there by the media, which is then picked up around the world. Now you have NATO countries sort of you know, thinking, oh my goodness, because you know, they read the headline and they don't look at the thing. And they say, well, does this mean that we're gonna be about, the whole thing is so ridiculous, so infuriating. And this from the people who never stop lecturing us about misinformation and false claims and all the rest of it. They're the ones doing it. It is absolutely appalling, but I think we all need to get ready for lots more of it to come. All right, that is our show for today. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you uh, enjoy all our episodes. We're actually off next week. I'm on a family vacation. So if you're a regular listener, I'm afraid there'll be a week off, but uh, I'll be back soon after that with another episode of The Steve Hilton Show. Make sure you follow us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. Tell all your friends, help grow our audience. It does mean a lot to us to know that you're there. We'll see you soon for the next episode of the Steve Hilton Show.